upgrade my Dropbox because we're out of space. Oh, snap. How many links you got? Recording so much quality content. There's no options. So if you want to you want to up your space in Dropbox, you have to go to one terabyte. Oh, wow. <laughs> so now I got one. I got one, one, from, one from four gigabytes to one terabyte. Well, they, they realize that this is this the Unwise Index is here to stay. We're going to need that space. Yeah. They, they totally got me. <laughs> um, well, one of the things that I know so certain people are pros at, I'm not a pro at, is like optimizing their Dropbox space by getting the extra like 400 or 200 megs at a time by referring friends. Oh, right. Yeah, I've done that. Some people are like, I got like 32 gigs doing that. I have like four gigs. You can use your school email address to get some more megs too. That's true. I don't know if our, if our JHU email addresses still work though. It's like the only thing my degree is use, useful for anymore. <laughs> Dropbox space. <laughs> Dropbox space. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the space is good. Like if we ever want to put the NYS index in the Library of Congress, they're going to need the raw right. files, right? They're going to need the raw files. We can just put, we can just give them Dropbox access, and they can just pull them themselves. Big news this week. Big news. What's the news? R.I.P. I, I, I almost can't say it. R.I.P. Bobby Jindal. You mean Piyush Jindal? I prefer to go by the name that he chooses to go by, Monik. <laughs> well, he, you hear how he based this name? How he got the name? The yeah, story. the Brady Bunch. He liked Brady Bobby Bunch, on the Brady Bunch. Bobby. Um, but but Hari Kondabolu, uh, comedian, had a had a pretty pretty amazing tweet, which is uh, this is the second time Bobby Jindal has quit a race. I know, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> which it's I mean, true, like, though. so far to me is like I get the pylon, and I I think we all feel to a degree uh, like sort of here's a guy who's you know he's told people of Indian origin not to wear Indian clothes to his like you know, his sort of um, events and stuff like that. And like, people just feel like he's sort of trying to cover up his identity. But I, I do feel like at times, like, we don't know the true story there. Like, maybe he really does believe in Catholicism and he really does not believe in hyphenated Americans and stuff. And I'm like, it's gotten to a weird point where I, I almost feel like everybody is so against the dude that I just like, I don't even know what his truth is. And I feel like we're making assumptions about what it is, you know? I can get that. But if you look at his, I mean, one is the... uh individuals wearing saris in his photos where apparently the photographers were told in advance do not take pictures with his family members who are in indian garb that's kind of an issue and then second the campaign's Definitely, slogan yeah. dude tanned tanned, tanned <laughs> he's like dude you ain't tanned you brown you're born tanned <laughs> like <laughs> sorry to break it to you bobby but you're you're brown i know right it's uh it's sad still supported him sad he's gone sad he's you gone. did support him i mean in my heart okay. my heart supported him I like how uh, everybody, like all the other candidates were like, you know, you know, great, you know, support Governor Jindal. I think he'll continue to be an important force in the party, yada, yada. But our boy Donald Trump, radio silence. Nothing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Republicans are making a a lot of news this week. Like outside of Carson, outside the RIP Jindal, like Trump and his pretty, uh, pretty antagonizing statements around state surveillance of Muslims. Um, so just give an ID card. It's a pretty slippery slope. <laughs> I don't think he sees it that way. Yeah, I guess he doesn't. Well, I mean, now he's basically stated that a reporter uh, gave the uh, idea of a database. It wasn't his idea, but he didn't state it was a bad idea. He's right. I didn't have that idea. The reporter did. <laughs> I just didn't say anything about it. I just said, we'll look into it. Well, you heard that there are now Syrians apparently coming through the Mexican border, according to Trump. He warned us, man. He warned us. That's why we need that wall, dude. We need build a, it. a big How- wall. I love how he's always like, like thousands of years ago, they built the Great Wall of China. And that's like going to be like 10 times as big as this wall. He's like, we can build a tiny wall. He's like, come on, we have it in us to build this wall. With a big fat door, though. For, yeah, if you're legally coming through. If you can come in legally. I like how he pronounces legally. 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 (laughs) It's like, make sure he enunciates it to drive home the point. (laughs) It's the fine print. Yeah. Yeah. Episode nine of the Unwise Index. I starts now? I think it's Episode 10. 9? 
I think it's 10. Is it episode 10? I don't, I don't recall myself saying episode 9. All right, it's episode 9. Episode 9. <laughs> I remember every time I say yeah. that. Episode 9 of the Unwise Index starts now. Um, I am one half of your host, Akshay, as always, joined by Monik. Monik is here, yes. Giving you a special cast this week, holiday week, Thanksgiving week. Um, Thanksgiving. It's hard to believe it's already almost the end of the year. I know, man. That's, this year really flew by quite quickly. Um, and that's what I'm hoping for, this like Thanksgiving holiday and Christmas holiday. Um, Christmas. Oh, so you're not, not winter holiday? Not winter holiday. Christmas holiday. Um, I, I want to treat myself. You know, Are you planning on treating yourself? Well, define treat yourself. You know, buying, buying stuff, you know, stuff you don't really need, but you know, just distracts you enough to be happy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm down with that. I haven't done enough of that this year. So Black Friday, uh, actually, my brother and I have this great scheme on Black Friday where he can get 20% cash back to Best Buy with this Best Buy car- rewards card and uh, if you pay via Apple Pay. And the Apple Watch is on sale uh, by quite a significant amount, like 100 bucks. And usually at Best Buy, Doorbuster, Black Friday deals, they limit how many items you can purchase, like one to two per person. But for the Apple Watch, you can buy 10. Wait, so what? my brother and I are going to go stand in line, buy 20 Apple Watches, and then sell them and make bank, dude. It's going to be great. You guys always have these eBay schemes. I <laughs> know. And like sometimes, they actually work. I mean, the last time we did it, we made a solid couple of hundred bucks, you know. Hustling, hustling. The experience is fun. It's all about fun. It's all about scheming. Have you ever had any like fun, not schemes per se, but any fun Black Friday slash shopping experiences? You ever stayed in line for something? Not on Black Friday, no. I think I actually only started to really participate in Black Friday when Amazon offered Black Friday, so I didn't have to move and I could just go online. (laughs) Online Um, warrior. Yeah, exactly. I'm an an online shopping warrior. Um, (laughs) But no, it's nothing to compete with your Xbox stories and your eBay stories, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I'm worried about this year because, like, online is probably the smarter decision in terms of safety. Because last year, you heard about all those stampedes at Best Buy and Walmart. Yeah, people yeah, literally died for doorbusters. Not about that dude. life. <laughs> it's like, man, it's materialism has run so rampant. People are willing to especially die for it's it. it's absurd now when you think about the fact you can just order everything online. Like, why do you why why even put yourself in harm's way? Like, there's some like beauty of like going into the store, supporting the brick and mortar sites because their time is nearing an end, and you know, picking up the box. <laughs> Driving back, it up. you know, just like holding it, you know. Holding it. <laughs> There's something about that. I mean, part of it, actually part of the appeal is when I stood in line, I've stood in line for a lot of things. But part of the uh, the, the best part of it is like actually talking to some people in the line. Because uh, like some people actually go all out and like get tents and get like. Yeah, seriously. Uh, like different, uh, get like a generator to like warm food and hang out food in the line or you're making friends and. Like realizing how much of a terrible decision you've all made. Like in a post-apocalyptic environment, except you're all just waiting for a damn video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everyone's like talking about how hyped they are for the game. It, it's an experience worth having at least definitely, once. Definitely, definitely. I always remember, so as a kid, like I would always be like, I really want this console. And my, my dad would say, do you, you want to go like wait in line? I'd be like, no. And then like a couple <laughs> days later, I'd be like on eBay trying to like figure out like, can we just spend like a little bit more money? And yeah, exactly, on eBay? Right. And he's like, you could have stood in line. And so I'd have to wait until like Christmas or whatever uh, to get it. So you were close to being the sucker my brother and I would get to buy Exa- these consoles. Yeah. For, like, There's probably an alternate universe where you guys sold me an Xbox for like $200 marked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, it's a time for, th- it's time for giving thanks as they say. So like, what yeah. what are you thankful for this year? Like we should, we should use this as a, as a cast to reflect on uh, what we're thankful for. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, 
I got to think about what I'm thankful for, really. I mean, like, obviously, you can give the, the classical, you know, I'm thankful for my friends and family and retaining uh, friendships and, and growing friendships and so on and so forth. And I think that's true. Um, I guess I'm thankful for this year was, was that um, uh, I was able to spend not more time personally, like in person, but I was able to carve out the, the, the right amount of time and the appropriate time to really chat with my family and friends much more like this cast is a resemblance of that right like we get to chat every week yeah and i'm thankful totally. for the fact we can do that i i'm thankful for the fact that i get to talk to my parents every day and it's internally become much more of a priority for me than in years past um so i'm thankful that i've been able to internally rationalize it and understand and value what matters and i think that's bred a lot more happiness uh in my day-to-day life um and then on the like the work-related side i'm kind of thankful for uh, earlier in the year, pretty stressful time in work, and this and now now doing a lot better. And uh, the ability to sanction off my time appropriately is probably what I'm most thankful for right now, which is bred, you know, good in work and life. That's a good answer. Thank you. It's a good answer, man. <laughs> Should make that into a medium post and post that. Yeah, get right. some likes. <laughs> no, I'd say like that largely echoes my sentiments too. Um, I think I probably haven't done as good of a job as you have when it comes to like allocating that time for friends and family. Yeah. Thing like I'm always sort of like I feel like I'm always a late bloomer when it comes to like these sorts of like realizations that happen around certain ages. Like it's like, oh, I should have realized that sooner, or like when I was like a teenager, I should have realized that sooner. Yeah. Um, but like now, it's sort of like that. That's the that's the thing now. Is like oh, I should probably be more mindful and like a little bit more protective of the time for friends and family. Like work was good this year. It was really busy. Um, had its ups and downs, but like. Like you said, like you have to make sure you are able to sanction off the time that is sort of protected. Yeah, um, and, and it's hard to do. It's hard to like. It's hard to do that. And I, but I think like yeah. this year, like even though I didn't, I can't look back and say like I did that really well. It's like I kind of at least got it got me to the point now where I realize like how important that is. Um, yeah, yeah. I think there are like moments in time that make it uh, so clear to you, right? Like because it's always progression. Like even now here, like my brother and my parents listen to this and they're like, he, got, he haven't been talking to us that much. Um, but yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I think it's a work in progress, but they're like moments in time where I, uh, I, I felt this, like one clear example was when I was uh, in Chicago, because my brother's getting married and um, I was helping him uh, finalize the engagement ring for his fiance, right? And at the time I was like getting a ton of emails from work. We had like a very hectic time yeah, and uh, like decisions need to be made, and I'm away here, and I realize my attention is fundamentally split. Uh, where I'm like looking at my emails, I'm in looking at Gmail, I'm trying to answer emails, and it got so bad to the point where I'm literally sitting with him in the jeweler uh, place where he's buying the ring, and I'm on fucking Gmail looking at my work emails, and it was a moment of clarity for me. I'm like, this, it's not does not matter at all. Uh, and the second where I saw that ring and talked to him about it, it's like, it was a moment of clarity for me. It's like, this can wait. And I think I'm thankful for the fact that I've realized what can wait and what can't. No, yeah, totally. And I think, I, at least with email, with work email especially, it's like, it's one of those things where you can go into more detail in maybe a future episode. But it like, it's so, it's one of those, it's almost like it's a dopamine fixation. It's like, when you get a new email, you got to address it. When you get some, right, exactly. and like email also is a medium, like when people are telling you about things or, or like, complaining or like they're worried about something like just the triteness of an email that comes into your inbox just it it like shouts at you for attention or at least we've been trained to view it that way where it's like if i actually deconstruct it and i think like what does this person want or like how 
urgent is this actually? Like, usually it's not of the urgency I'm going to treat it with. But, like, again, right. like, there's that thing where, like, your phone is just constantly buzzing and, like, your, your immediate reaction, your visceral reaction is, like, I just want to quell all this buzzing. Right? Yeah. And it's also, it gives it gives uh, more legitimacy to the excuse of I'm always busy, right? Right. Totally. Because uh, if you place yourself in being always busy and you're forcing yourself to always be busy, it doesn't really mean that you really need to be that busy, <laughs> right? Like It's true. It does, it does. <laughs> There's biz, busy work, I think, is the term, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's like I think I think we're probably both thankful for for family and friends, and um, I'm I think we're also going to be thankful for being able to play some video games and chill out this holiday I know, season. Dude, I cannot wait. Um, but uh, so this was going to be sort of a short cast, uh, you know, holiday cast. But given sort of the recent events in Paris, horrible events, um, we did prepare a little bit of material, just you know, not on the attacks itself, not to sort of like emulate news coverage, or to like go into like the sort of like speculative you know, different strands about like what, what could potentially be coming next or what we're hearing on the news. But, um, you know, both the point of interest that we've discussed in the past uh, prior to this podcast is, you know, just sort of the roots of an organization like ISIS, what motivates them. Um, And so I think, you know, we both prepared a little bit to talk about just just a slice of this whole really big wide conversation, which is, you know, what does, what does an organization like ISIS want fundamentally that leads them to do horrific acts like what happened in Paris? And like, how can we, you know, even at a basic level, understand what they're about? And I think like, because it seems so alien, like it's sort of an abstract thing. You see these things about what's happening in the Middle East, these news articles, but when like a huge attack like this happens, I think it causes us all to think like, like what could motivate somebody to actually do that? Right. Um, Right. And, and it's, I mean, it's pretty uh, appropriate right now. I mean, considering that ISIS is now threatening you know, places where we've been at, you know, I'm living in New York, they threatened Times Square and Herald Square, I'm living, I'm and I'm, I'm working right between those, threatened yeah. DC, you were in DC last week. Uh, and I mean, it, it plays quite well with being thankful for things, because I think that the reality is, is that people are literally losing their lives day in and day out uh, to this terror. And um, again, it helps us reevaluate and prioritize what's important. Uh, I know there's a lot of argument on like my social media, I'm sure there was on yours, yeah, because uh, there were obviously attacks in Paris, and there were always uh, obviously attacks in other areas like Lebanon. Uh, people were arguing, you know, why are people uh, showing moral outrage and be showing uh, sympathy for the Paris attacks and not the Lebanon attacks? And I feel that you know, putting human suffering on a gradient like that is so counterproductive. And uh, this person actually made a really nice uh, Facebook post. It's like instead of arguing about you know caring about certain lives in which lives get more moral outrage or which lives denote a change in face profile uh, image. You know, like the Paris attacks led to a lot of people coloring their profile images with the uh, France flag. How about we realize that, you know, our time is short here and let's spend more time with family and friends and cherish those moments instead of bickering about more uh, human suffering wherever it takes place. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's important. And I think it's important to really talk about, as you said, what is the root of all this? I think all of us are pretty baffled and, and partly scared and I think that we need to understand more of where this is coming from uh, and what the future might hold and how we can maybe prevent it. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree on the point that, you know, it reaffirms what's important and where you should focus. But like, I think there's almost like a line that you have to um, make sure you, you're sort of mindful of, which is like, it should never be an excuse for inaction or just accepting reality as it is. Um, yeah. Because you think about this, you know, the same thing you heard about, you know, after the mass shootings that happened in the U.S., like Sandy Hook, uh, the Aurora shootings. 
um, you know, every other mass shooting that's happened since where people from the right wing, you know, or like I'd say people who are more aligned with the NRA will come in and say, this isn't the time to talk about gun rights. or This isn't the time to talk about gun control. You know, we right. should just be focused on like, you know, being united and like being against this misery. And I think like, you know, there's there's obviously like a crystal of truth there for sure. But like in this case, you know, sort of the analogous point is, yes, it's a terrible event. We should all come together as a global society, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But it's also really worth, and I'm sure there are lots of organizations in the world and various allied governments that are wondering, okay, so what did these people want and how do we stop them? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the most kind of, kind of the sum of what you hear is a debate between, you know, folks who say this is just kind of this cancerous blob in the Middle East that has chosen to use to, to sort of malign Islam and religious beliefs to motivate their own selfish intentions, which is taking control and sort of being a barbaric they call them a death cult that just right. wants to control territory and project power. Right. And then there's, I think, a more subtle strand, which I think we both tend to, I think, see logic in, which is this is a very literal interpretation of religious doctrine. Yeah. Um, and there is no, and it's sort of counterproductive to deny the fact that there is religious basis to what these people are doing. Um, yeah. And it isn't to say that, like, you have to be very careful, I think, about trying to make blanket statements about a religion that is, you know, has largely, largely, largely peaceful adherence. And we have lots of yeah. Muslim friends, both of us, both of us. Um, but there is definitely a, you know, it's, I think it was Bernard Haeckel, who's, you know, a scholar, foremost scholar on right. this stuff, right. who said, like, it's absurd to say that somebody like ISIS can read religious texts, interpret them, and you, you as like someone who's outside can make the call about whether they're Islamic or not. Of course right. they're Islamic. Right, right. Um, and I think that's where the, that's where the rub is. It's how do you yeah. acknowledge the fact there is this problem with this interpretation without, um, you know, making crazy blanket attempts to silence or censor or like have an entire people be on the hook for their for their actions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a there's an inherent issue with acknowledgement of the problem. And you pointed to this idea of a death cult where you have a lot of world leaders who call this kind of a nihilistic movement where, I mean, just in, integral to the idea of nihilism, this is very far from it, right? This is a very defined and, and clearly motivated attacks and a movement that is uh, at some level based on religious scripture and doctrine. Um, and I think acknowledgement of that problem is pretty key. But we have to, as you said, speak very specifically about what we're talking about and who we're talking about, really. If we go back to like the, the original question, which is what, what do they really want? It's uh, really an Islamist point of view where they're trying to really instill the caliphate as far reaching as they possibly can. And the caliphate being the Muslim empire of, of, like, of legend. Like, yeah. that, that is the descendant of, of Prophet Muhammad's like, Islamic kingdom, basically. Right, right. And also in this caliphate adhere to a very strict interpretation of Sharia law and all the uh, doctrines in the Quran and the Hadiths. Um, so I think that is uh, definitely real motivation and real want of theirs. Uh, and of course, you know, pushing for the end of times and, and, and kind of an ap apocalyptic struggle. But I think part of what they want, and what I think it's really important to be mindful of, is they really want to instill a sense of divide between secular Western world and what they construe as the Islamic world. Um, yeah. And, and you're trying to recruit people more and more to the Islamic world to better create this wedge and divide. So when they make these types of attacks abroad and they share this type of propaganda, and obviously we attack with bombs and arms uh, and military force, at some level it exacerbates the issue because it really is validating their propaganda that this is really a divide. And this really is uh, Western allies that are joining together 
and ensuing violence on now this uh, actually well-defined territory of the caliphate, which has now been linked back into Islamic doctrine. And I, I'm not sure how to combat that. And we can talk a little bit more about what the, the ways forward are. Uh, but I think that that is really what they want. But I think the, the tougher issue of understanding is why are people being compelled to join in droves from yeah. multiple levels of social class, right? I mean, you can, you can make a strong argument to say in the Arab world, which have been hit by extremely poor foreign policy from Western powers, which uh, who a lot of live a lot, live lives of extreme marginalization and alienation uh, and extreme economic depravity, uh, that the ability the, the reasoning for them to join ISIS, for example, that offers some sense of state security might be more reasonable, but then that logic kind of falls apart when you look at the fact that a lot of people in the in the European world are being recruited into ISIS uh, and they're you're not really compelled by their parents. These are not first-generation immigrants who are going over. It's their kids. Yeah. Um, and and the, the real question is, why is this ideology so potent and been able to capture and entrap the minds of so many young people to go over? Yeah, I think I think that's a key. That That's like one of the, the, the foremost questions, right? It's like, why does this have such broad appeal with people who are in developed countries that seem to have access to education and resources and, and so on? Like, why is it still so... That this like militant death cult ideology, as they call it, so compelling to them. Yeah. Um, and I think there is just something like feverishly compelling in sort of a grotesque, almost like perverse sense about having like this, you have like divine ordinance, right? Yeah. It's this, you know, there, there's religious fundamentalists that you hear about in all different stripes. And in the Christian stripes, it's the ones that are waiting for Armageddon to happen or think that, you know, Obama or somebody's going to bring the end days. The crazy thing about ISIS, I think, that was pointed out in one of the articles that we read was that they have put themselves in the role of the protagonists. Right. They think they are the, they are building the caliphate, the kingdom that is going to bring about the end of days. And they're basically, their appeal is saying like, you know, do you feel like your life lacks meaning, lacks yeah. any sort of, uh, you know, sort of clear intention? Well, come join us. We are actually on the cusp of this sort of divine providence. Yeah. And I think that's, if you're disenfranchised, like they said in France, the population is 7 to 8% Muslim, but in jails, it's 75 to 80% Muslim. That's startling, that's just, right? That's, that's one statistic. I don't know if that's correct, but if even close to correct, that's incredibly startling. Yeah. Um, and you look at like countries throughout sort of South, Southern Europe and Central Europe that have these disenfranchised folks that are from Muslim countries that don't feel like they've assimilated, don't feel like they're part of the cultures there. Right. Um, and they're lacking, you know, they just feel like they're second class citizens. And so if you have this group that's basically telling them with their anger, with their frustration, here's the chance to be part of, you know, your sort of birthright, your sort of religious calling. Um, I think it's like this, and, they, and they, there's lots of these articles in the New Yorker and the Atlantic that catalog, you know, the the teenage, you know, the teenagers fall to jihadism, right? Right. And I think a lot of them are like sort of of the same mold, which is here's a person who didn't feel like they had any direction or didn't feel like they really fit in, and here's like, and and the jihadists that reached out to them over social media didn't do so in this very militant fashion. They did so as almost like in like this really crazy way, like as a like as a psychiatrist or like a counselor. They were like, "Let me listen to your problems. Don't you feel like you don't have any direction?" Yeah. And kind of manipulated them like slowly and almost treat like every single convert as a special case right. and saying like, and, and just kind of like, apparently they treat this very delicately and it's kind of crazy and saying like, they, they sort of like play to their, they, to their fears and their, their sort of shortcomings. And, yeah. um, 
it's just nuts how that's managed to scale, you know, across what what is now thousands of recruits from all sorts of countries. Yeah, thousands and thousands. I mean, I think that that, start, uh, that statistic you shared, 70% in prison versus 7% of the population is Muslim in France. Uh, I mean, no wonder um, individuals feel alienated and disenfranchised, right? I mean, that's a that's a pretty crazy statistic. And then you look at a Pew result poll where one in four French youth have a favorable opinion of ISIS. Uh, that is not good. But I think that the radicalization process and this like almost therapeutic sense of um, uh, religious leaders in certain alienated communities offering guidance to youth, this is, has been going on for quite a long time. And I, I always point to uh, what I, I'll get to what I think the answer is, but I always point to this guy named Majid Nawaz, uh, who recently uh, wrote a book with uh, Sam Harris and has been on the media circuit for quite some time, he himself was radicalized, and he himself was one of the people who was recruiting individuals. Uh, and his his change in belief was when he was a, pol- a political prisoner, and he actually met some of the future leaders of Al Qaeda and um, and ISIS, and he realized that if these guys ever came to power and wanted to instill a theocracy that they want to do, these they're they're kind of morally bankrupt individuals, and he was kind of scared off from it. And now his whole mission and purpose in life has been to eradicate uh, and actually present a counter-narrative to the narrative that's appealing to people. Because I think the fundamental issue is that people don't have a strong national identity because one, they're alienated, two, they're being imprisoned, three, they don't have uh, economic uh, improvement in terms of employment. What's the other identity they can grab to? Well, the identity they can grab to is now their religious identity. And sadly, the narrative associated to their religious identity in some of these communities is directly tied to ISIS propaganda. Um, and the religious identity really trumps everything else, which is a huge issue. And I, I think that the only the only way forward, honestly, is not through bombs. Um, and I think that there's maybe a reasonable case to be shared that we need to protect certain uh, contingents in the Middle East, like the Kurds, who are fighting their hearts out for their very existence. Um, but I think that the long-term strategy is we need to live with the reality that there is now an increased level of risk for us to be attacked by this kind of global insurgency that's tied to Islamist ideology from ISIS. And the long-term solution is really to provide and support moderate Muslims who are providing a counter-narrative to what ISIS claims and wants. And the crazy thing is, I mean, a lot of the Syrian refugees, they're leaving because they they realize, like, ISIS is crazy. (laughs) They're like, yeah, screw this, right? And a great documentary I saw in Afghanistan where you have the Taliban still existing, you have ISIS still existing, and they're still fighting, and you have um, tribes associating to each. And then you have a lot of communities that are like, guys, like, I'm trying to practice my faith, and these guys are an absolute mess. They're a terror on this earth, and I want nothing to do with them. And I think that's really the way forward is that communities internal to the world need to, uh, at one level, fight back and provide a counter-narrative and so that we don't really need to join ISIS to thrive. Then the whole issue fighting all up against this, and we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot here, is we're not even willing to name the problem, right? Some Western leaders, Obama in particular, is not willing to call a spade a spade. Uh, He needs to clearly state that ISIS is an ideology that is based on Islamist scripture, uh, Salafist reading of the faith, and he's not willing to do that. And by not doing that, it's hurting all the moderate and minority Muslims 
in the Arab world. I agree with you on that. And I think, um, but I think the, what he would probably contend is he doesn't want to overly, like, and I think this is probably not the case, not even a debate anymore, but at one point early in their existence, earlier in their, in ISIS's, ISIS's existence, he didn't want to legitimize them or overly legitimize them, I think, was probably yeah. part of it. Yeah. Um, and like, by sort of naming them, he gives them power and gives their recruiting efforts power. Um, and I think like a lot of, like, I, I definitely agree with you that I think it has to come from within the faith. It yeah. has to come within the moderate, you know, like the, the vast majority of moderate Muslims um, to sort of combat this within within their own ranks, yeah. within their own countries and regions and communities. But I think there is just, it, it even goes beyond just faith, I think, in some ways. Like, it's not just, oh, there's this part of one faith that needs to be addressed. It's the fact that, like, ISIS for people in that region that feel disenfranchised and also disenfranchised globally, I think there is something. So there was a great George Orwell quote, which is, on fascism where he says like i could never dislike hitler when i read his books yeah. he says like hitler always had this way of making himself seem like this underdog that was fighting in these amazingly heroic battles even if they were for the worst absolute most atrocious causes yeah and he says like where socialism you know sort of says i offer you a good time and capitalism says i'll keep you busy and fulfilled like he says that fascism and what he learned from reading hitler's books was like it offers you struggle danger and death and it gives your life meaning yeah. I think to, to a certain contingent, I'm not sure if there's a cat, like, if there's something that is as sort of compelling at that, at that sort of, uh, at that sort of intensity that ISIS provides for some, some people of a certain mindset, you know? And yeah. it has to sort of be smothered and extinguished, but until it is, I almost feel like, um, just, just the, just the, the sheer craziness of it is, is, is sort of this uh, compelling thing in itself. So you're saying the purpose uh, uh, that they're trying just to... Just the sheer purpose. It, it, it gives you too much of weight. They're on, a cos- they're on a cosmic quest, right? And yeah. like, if they can convince you that that resonates with you in some, you know, for some strange, crazy reason, maybe not that crazy for some people. Yeah. Um, I don't know if like just talking somebody down from the edge in sort of a moderate fashion is going to... If you can really quell that, if you can really cut all the heads off the hydra with that method, right? right. I mean, you would have to reformulate the the counter narrative to have that strong of a purpose, right? We are working on a purpose to uh, equity for all, which is a, a kind of almost kind of a cosmic type of thing. But I think part of the other the narrative you're talking about that ISIS tries to portray is the idea of victimhood, right? Is that we are uh, we have been victims for so long, and now it yeah. is time for us to fulfill our purpose and, you know, extend this uh, territory and extend this terror, which is just uh, not good. <laughs> it's just not good. No, I mean, it's, it's really just unclear how, you know, you could squash ISIS, quote unquote, and all their territory. But like what keeps that ideology alive is is sort of that sentiment, right? And the feeling that it has, like, there's there's obviously a religious core to it, but there's also like this, just there, there's a sort of a magnetic attraction of extremist thought around i think a large part of it is the feeling of oppression and the feeling of being disenfranchised yeah and so you crush this particular organization what stops one from taking its place um yeah and i think like as you said like it's a global insurgency so you don't need to have armies even though they have one in in sort of iraq and syria to do the kinds of things we saw in paris uh, and elsewhere which is the scariest thought of it all right yeah yeah i mean Um, i i'm not sure um what exactly the way forward is uh, outside of uh, empowering the communities on the ground to realize this is just not uh, not appealing to the the opposing life that they could lead, right? It's it's uh, they could lead a much better life than um, supporting ISIS or anything like that. Uh, and obviously, people are realizing this. That's why you have so many refugees leaving in droves. And the the brutal irony of the fact is now you know that the right wing in the U.S. and abroad 
are discounting these refugees as terrorists, right? And it's the plight of these refugees is like is going to go down in history as one of the most terrible, terrible things. I feel uh, it's you know where do they go? They're on one hand they're hit by uh, alienation, Islamophobia, and bigotry uh, and fear. On the other side, they're literally uh, pushed by sword to leave. Uh, and, yeah. and, and if they, and then what 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 the the reality is the worst thing is what ISIS really wants is they want them to be hit by Islamophobia and bigotry and no acceptance because then their only way they can only place they can turn to is the Islamic State and they have to return or they have to go there and they have to find a way to assimilate into that society which is uh, just adds to adds to them and then you have their children who are going to be indoctrinated and there's a, a powerful documentary again going back to Afghanistan where they were showing the kids uh, in, in the Islamic State uh, being taught about the apostates uh, abroad and the Western Crusaders and holding guns and grenades. And he's a five to six years old. And you think about this is going to be a generational problem we have to face. And it's going to be difficult. And I think one is, yeah, supporting the other narratives. But the other thing is this idea of individual privacy versus collective security, right? It's I think right now everyone is up in arms about the fact that France is now going to be doing more surveillance. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the U.S. has been doing surveillance for some time. I mean, where do you fall on this? Uh, how much of your freedom are you willing to give up knowing that you're facing this kind of ghost of a threat which can pop up at any time, any place because it's an ideology that has broad appeal at some level? I personally fall now towards collective security. I'm like, yo, NSA, come at me, dude. I, I don't mind. <laughs> like, Yeah, I, I'm not, not, not quite at that level for sure. Like, I, I think like there is... I think there's been compelling cases that have been made around the fact that like massive collection doesn't really result in more security. Yeah. I mean, it obviously widens the pool, but like your attention also has to then come through that much more information. Does it implicitly then make you less attentive on the detail? Like do your investigations as a whole then become less precise because like you're just sort of like your first step is always just to assemble the widest net of data. And then you're sort of looking through everything, trying to assemble, like, does it actually in effect result in you looking at the right things at the right times when it matters? Um, and I think there have been cases to say it doesn't. I think like that's one of the debates that'll, that'll crop up in addition to, uh, but, but it's, it's sort of one of those, I agree with you that like, it'll, it'll always be an issue that's outstanding until there is sort of widespread peace and resolve in the region, you know, when kids who are five and six years old are not being trained to to become Islamic fighters. Yeah. Right. And I think like, yeah, there's definitely the, the, the sense that like ISIS will win, even if they have, you know, a small crippled contingent, if they allow this fear to continue to spread and are, we continue to, you know, sort of clamp down on every aspect of society increasingly from a security perspective in an attempt to sort of read out every possible vector through which they could attack. Yeah. It's like at some point that just goes to like this crazy extreme that I think even hardline security security files would, would sort of think is absurd. I mean, it's interesting to see how ISIS even thinks of this idea of increased security and, res- and the resources expended to do this, right? Uh, I don't know if you saw, they wrote this manifesto in 2004 from Al-Qaeda, the management of savagery, where it clearly outlines that by doing these attacks, security will increase in the Western world. Yep. And uh, because of this increased security, their resources will be expent and fear will be produced. Exactly. Like yeah. they're just it's focused like, on all these possible, you know, uh, sort of avenues of attack. And that provides a distraction, perhaps in effect. Yeah. I mean, it's either, but the th- thing is like, I view it as kind of a game of probabilities. Like right now there is a higher probability for a Western citizen to be attacked by a jihadist that is coming from ISIS. Yep. And I'm thinking that either we live with this fact 
live generations upon generations with supporting uh, reformers in the faith and counter narratives in the uh, in the Arab world, or we optimize in the short term and increase our surveillance to reduce the 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 risk right now and reduce the probability of being attacked now. I mean, yeah, you can make the argument that a lot of the surveillance we've done so far hasn't been proven fruitful. Well, I think like, well, I wouldn't actually agree with that. I think like there have been, you know, hints and nudges saying that, you know, there have been lots of attacks that have been stopped. But I think people right. just worry about whether or not um, the all of the extreme measures taken have actually been fruitful. I'm mean, not that like, you know, counterintelligence and intelligence just in itself haven't been successful, but just whether or not some of these collection methods have. I was listening to Farid Zakaria's uh, podcast earlier today about this and one thing is like uh, different state actors sharing information about their own citizens. So, for example, in Belgium, they knew that one of their citizens went to Syria, most likely got radicalized at a time period they returned back and was traveling to France. Uh, but they, could, they, they weren't willing to share that information to France because this individual and citizen uh, had not committed a crime yet. They just had a suspicion that they were probably radicalized from the repeat visits to ISIS-controlled territory and where does that barrier lie then? You're talking about a citizen who hasn't committed an act of terror yet, hasn't committed any act, uh, but we believe that they've been influenced by ideology. And then you're getting into the a really slippery moral slope of, you know, persecuting individuals for thought and thought crimes, right? Like it's yeah, what the answer is. There. Totally. I don't got all the answers, man. I don't got the answers, man. Because then you're talking about like literally freedom of expression uh, comes into that debate where it's, uh, and that's another huge cloud over this it's like people can be convinced of purposes pretty easily everyone has a purpose everyone needs a cause at some level but to i i still don't understand why that this cause then leads to a behavioral action that is so strong that it manifests itself as something like a beheading uh and is it just that you've thrown divine ordination into the mix of the cause i i think there is something very core in like being a human being and being a high functioning ape at the end of the day like sort of the tribal affiliation of like you know in the world where we're becoming more politically correct you know we're having more and more of our core you know sort of needs physiologically like if you think about maslow's hierarchy taken care of um where it's super compelling at some strange primal level to have that sort of cosmic quest to have that sort of just uh you know like clarity of focus even if it's i think that can be so intoxicating that that's what can lead somebody to be you know a murderous crazy person yeah um is 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 the fact that somebody can look at you dead in the eye you can tell they believe it to their bones that there is a cause worth putting your line on for it's 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 the fascism quote right it's yeah it's this is something that's worth fighting for um even if it's utterly ludicrous and I think, you know, in a world where people feel like oh, there's really nothing worth fighting for sometimes, yeah. um, having that sort of clear thunderbolt uh, can, can be yeah. madly compelling. The path is laid for you, and it's being validated by your friends who are around you, right? Like, Yeah. And and people who are very good, manip- you know, psychological manipulators whispering to you over social media, telling you, you know, this is the path that they walked, and now look at them, and they feel so much better. And Yeah, and I think it's important also to note that the original uh, individuals of al-Qaeda and, and, well, not so much ISIS, but like they were all intellectual individuals, right? Doctors, surgeons, yeah. like the son, like the heirs to fortunes. Um, but the ISIS contingent, again, the interesting thing is they were sort of the satellite al-Qaeda in Iraq before they were ISIS. And they were considered to be much more brutal, right? Right. 
right. much much more sort of barbaric, even by the Al Qaeda folks who said like, why do you guys keep talking about the apocalypse and like you know making such public displays of beheadings? Like yeah. they said, Al Qaeda as an organization are like was much more focused on like sort of crippling Western institutions, like right. cripple Israel, cripple the West, America. Whereas ISIS was much more fixated on like, actually, we are the bringers of divine providence. We are going to be the caliphate. Yeah. And like, um, the, the schism that eventually occurred, I think, was, uh, really a clashing of like one's, one set of fundamentalist beliefs versus another. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the one that went out was the more extreme version of that narrative. Yeah. Which is, which is, it was a very, very, uh, very bizarre turn of events in the year 2015, 2014. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, it's a sad state of affairs. Um, I just hope that, you know, more individuals like Majid Nawaz get more in the limelight. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about this anonymous attack that they're doing against the Islamic State. I love um, the quote. These are not the 72 virgins you expected. I know, right? That was that was great. Uh, I was like, I looked at my Guy Fox mask in my apartment. I'm like, yeah, anonymous, go for it. But it actually could make a pretty demonstrable blow when you look at a Maybe. lot of their... I don't know. I just like... I feel like every other week, Anonymous is like, we're assembling the troops to do this. And it's like... Yeah, but I mean, I mean, but I think that if we realize that the purpose is shared via, and the propaganda is shared via social media, them shutting down thousands of Twitter accounts, that can make a pretty, uh, a pretty huge re- reduction in the spread of the propaganda. I would hope. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm totally hopeful that that is the case i'm just skeptical yeah so i mean um be careful who you follow on twitter man if you get any if you get any direct messages any dms from shady people just just think about it before you think about before you engage i mean going back to um you know purpose and ideas have you ever been so uh you know believed an idea to your bones that were that was so um irrational in a sense right you could not really believe fully in the logic but for some reason you you realize that this is truth um, have you ever found yourself in that state? I, I know both I of us. I don't think so. So this is the most fascinating part about reading about this. Is I don't believe that I personally have ever felt something with that level of ferocity. Yeah. Um, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I mean, both of us aren't uh, extremely religious. I mean, I was born into a Hindu household and uh, yeah. keep up with the traditions. So it was, I never felt anything super strong in terms of religious identity. Uh, I think there was a time period in, in my life where I felt... Uh, very strongly about this idea of interconnectedness, like uh, the idea that whatever I say and however I conduct myself has a very clear and immediate impact on my surroundings in the future. Like through every uh, pain and through every good act, uh, I can birth the future of humans, right? And we're all interconnected in some way. And if you believe that to your very bones, I think it does really fundamentally change uh, the way you interact with people, like the uh, the idea of yeah. treating people poorly, is just uh, anathema. Like it does not make any sense. It's like the, it's like the Buddhist idea of compassion. Exactly, it's a very similar type of idea, and it, it stemmed from uh, kind of a change in thinking about free will, right? Because I think a lot of people believe. Um, again, I, I point to Sam Harris as a instrumental voice here, but this was slightly before Sam Harris's book on free will. Uh, people point to the idea that. Uh, we are really the thinker of our thoughts and we're controlling our beliefs and our state and we're controlling our free will when in reality you realize much of what you do and what I'm, which, much of what I'm saying right now has been really predetermined by all the previous variables in my past from you know from birth up until now. And if you really believe that, as I did, and I still do to some extent, um, then you, it removes moral culpability of individuals, one, which is a negative, but two, it's extremely uplifting because you realize that the future is yours to control. 
you can, uh, at some level, even though you might not be controlling your thoughts right now, if you know this knowledge, you can live your life in a compassionate way. It also removes the punitive side of culpability, right? You don't have to feel like you have to harbor hatred or you know, contempt towards people who do things because, right, right. because like, it's not like they shouldn't be like, like I think Sam Harris, I think we both have probably read or watched the same talks or books. Um, but it's like, you shouldn't be dumb about it where if like somebody's a murderous villain, you don't lock them away, but yeah, yeah, obviously you do that. But if like, really you think about the fact that everybody's thoughts are in some form predetermined or like not really in our control, like thoughts just appear in your head moment to moment. Yeah. Like it removes your ability to then the person you've locked away for you to hate that person. Exactly. For you to actually feel like, um, to have this sort of like constant, uh, sort of source of negativity towards something because that's just, there, there's no real it's almost somewhat pseudo nihilistic because there's no real purpose behind what they did. It's just what they did it just happened to be just, the yeah, way exactly. their thoughts were. If you out. were that person with the same mental state and the same variables, you would do the same. There's no thing interestingly integral to who you are that uh, makes you different outside of your experience. Like a matrix type comment. There's like, there's no other way it could have gone. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's just how it was configured. That's, but I think that even knowing that, uh, knowing that fact and living by it, then changes the way you live your life. And it's hard to accept that fact. I don't know about you, but I, I thought that was a really compelling set of arguments, but it's hard to hold on to those as like ways, like and sort of internalize them. Yeah. Like it's just so counter to how you've been conditioned and how like, at least how I've personally like grown up and the belief systems that we're exposed to, like this idea of sort of having that level of um, sort of universal compassion is like, it's very hard. It's like, easy to think about and have like nice little thought experiences with in like an afternoon. Yeah. But it's hard to like sort of maintain that mindset like beyond an afternoon. I, I think it's, I think it's true. At, at some level, it, it uh, sometimes can, uh, it either can be uplifting or it can be very dehumanizing where you're like, all right, I'm just this vessel walking through life, right? Experiencing things and whatever happens, happens. But I think the the main way to internalize it, you know, I can now very much by my words and actions influence a, a kind of a positive strain of thought uh, wherever I go. And that will uh, lead, that will be in a sense of my legacy in a sense like we're going back to a few episodes when we go where i talked about legacy the legacy is that i realized i conducted myself to produce net positive in the future uh, because i realized that my actions are going to influence the future in such a way so i mean that's kind of I, I think that's the only, the only belief that i've held extremely dearly and i've really tried to like cultivate my actions to fit but you know at the end of the day it's like as you said pretty hard to do uh, yeah. And the overwhelming sense of ego, like, kind of takes over. You just want to play some some video games, and then you just kind of forget about it. Yeah, and yeah. it's just like it's hard to sort of longitudinally like just keep it front and center. Yeah, well, I wish that was the purpose <laughs> that was spread, dude. I wish that was the message that was spread around the world. Who knows? Maybe it will. Maybe the, that. Will, maybe some thrust of that will be some like counter counterbalance against ISIS at some point. Yeah. So, so I, I agree with you that it has to fundamentally fundamentally be hearts and minds at some level. Like whether it's like point to point, like people, you know, like peace peace uh, spreaders deployed in the region, but like. That's the only way it'll prevent a whole, like you said, generation or two or three from emerging in the same exact way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it has to reflect, of course, all the other aspects like foreign policy and like just the entire, you know, miasma that is the region getting unscrewed. Yeah. And uh, it's there's lots to do. There are lots, lots to, to, do, to do, man. And there's so many other countries now just like, I mean, obviously Boko Haram, but there are a lot of uh, other uh, nations in, in Africa, Africa yeah. that are just, you know, throwing up the banner of ISIS. And, uh, I don't know, man. I'm scared, dude. I'm scared. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm also optimistic that um, it'll get dealt with. Yeah. Um, I But I agree with you. It's like there's definitely like a level of fear, but it's also like a level of like there's such a, again, like things like um, 
Twitter and like just general media presence show you like how quickly the rest of the world can just sort of respond and be like, this is absurd. This is, you know, yeah. unconscionable. Um, and just like instantaneously, like a global network of folks responding to that is that, that, that's like the hopeful strand there. Yeah. And again, it shows the power of ideas. Like this simple yeah. idea that a spread has now allied Russia, China, the US, most of Europe, like instantly, uh, which is uh, pretty crazy. It's true, man. Well, we don't got all the answers, but uh, I think hopefully we hopefully we, we discuss some potential partial, maybe incomplete answers. Yeah. The real question is, what does Ja think right now? Where is Ja Rule in a time oh. like this? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really looking at Ja Rule at a time like yeah. this? <laughs> Episode 9, 9, I think it is, on lock? Episode 9 on lock, yeah. Thanks, Thanksgiving. Thanks for giving. Thanks, thanks for giving, dude. Thanks for giving. Be <laughs> thankful, man. Be thankful for giving. We all got give, give thanks. Give thanks. Exactly. Boom.